Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Benedict Beckel. Benedict's a writer and a philosopher. Today we'll be talking with him about his book, Western Self-Contempt, Oikophobia in the Decline of Civilizations. Oikophobia is kind of an interesting word, one I'd never heard before, but it's not one he made up. It's at least a limited circulation prior. Let me spell it for folks, because I'm not quite sure I got my pronunciation right. O-I-K-O. P-H-O-P-I-A. So, welcome, Benedict. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. I really enjoyed reading the book. So let's start off with the obvious starting point. What is oikophobia? And how would you pronounce it, by the way? Yeah, I would pronounce it oikophobia, just as you did. And uh, oikophobia is a neologism, but it was coined by the late Sir Roger Scruton about uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And it's based, of course, on the Greek oikos, meaning home, and phobia, of course, fear of. And it's referring to uh, Western self-contempt, as the title of my book says, or fear of one's own cultural home. And it's this tendency with which I think we're all all too familiar nowadays about uh, Westerners who think that the West is the worst civilization in the world and is responsible for everything that goes wrong. And then also, of course, more specifically, Americans who think that specifically America is the worst country in the world and guilty of all kinds of crimes. And so people who who hate their own civilization in one way or other or look down on it, on its more traditional values and so on, and who think that the rest of the world is superior. And this is a big part of the book. This is a phenomenon that actually occurs and recurs in history. So it's uh, it's not entirely new. Yeah, and I thought that was actually one of the things that was most interesting for me was to see this pattern had been recurring, at least since the Greeks. And uh, we will talk a little bit about some of the things you said about at least congruent patterns that are similar in other civilizations. So, But mainly the focus will be on the West. The other thing you do, oh, actually, before we move on, you give a couple of examples. One I thought was kind of relevant was that uh, you talked about a dinner in Rome, almost in the shadow of the Colosseum. And one of your companions, a fellow academic, insisted that oppression and imperialism were the core contributions of the West to the world. You describe this as a perfect example of oikophobia. I thought that was quite bang on that the, uh, these folks, but I would also point out, and I think this is real important to think about the context of it, that you pointed out this was a fellow academic. Now, I spent a lot of time in the academic world as an advisor on science governance and sometimes actually science itself. And yes, we do find a disproportionate amount of such thoughts in academia, but I think it's also important to realize that, let's say in the United States, the number of people infected is probably less than we think. You know, my own guess is only about 15%. However, those people are very much, have captured the high ground of media, culture, academia, governance, etc. So it seems like this value is a lot more. So I think that's at least uh, worth considering. What's your thought about that? Am I uh, am I crazy or um no, I think I think you're more or less right. I think the 15% figure you gave is actually a bit optimistic, but otherwise otherwise certainly your identification that it's uh, 
to a considerable extent an academic phenomenon, I think is entirely correct. But the reason, um, of course, uh, orcophobia can vary in degree. I would say it's most extreme, maybe the most radical orcophobes might be just 10 or 15%. But a sort of general movement or tendency toward orcophobia, I think, is much broader and has seeped down into the rest of society at large as well and isn't just academic. And part of the reason for that is that of course, it's easier for academics to look down on their surrounding, on their own surrounding civilization, because they are at the forefront of what's new, of what's of what's revolutionary in philosophy or uh, sociology, whatever their field is, and in science. And so they look down on more traditional ways, traditional values. There are many other reasons as well why it's the intellectual elite that becomes orcophobic. And I, I spent quite a bit of time in the book discussing all the various reasons for this. But the reason I think that the phenomenon has spread beyond the academy is because the uh, academic lifestyle or the access to information and to books, and uh, which all create an illusion of expertise, is something that has gone beyond academia. The more egalitarianism and the more democracy, the more democratization we find in a society, the more people are uh, have the tendency of slipping into orcophobia. If someone is, uh, shall we say, a recluse, in a small village somewhere and just has his church and his very small local community, there's very little risk that that person will be seduced by foreign ways or uh, be be enticed by things that are different from his own civilization. But the more people are exposed to outside influence, which of course in and of itself is not a bad thing, right? I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm an academic myself to a considerable extent, right? So I'm not condemning obviously the pursuit of knowledge and the pursuit of of different ways. But the more a person is exposed to those things, the likelier it is to uh, slip into orcophobia and to think that other things, other ways are better than one's own culture. And so since we are living in a society where access to information is becoming more and more diffused, it's uh, also easier for the rest of society, not just the academic elite, to become orcophobic. And so that's why I I say that at least when it comes to some traces of orcophobia, uh, I would say it's probably beyond 15%. Maybe it's partly because I live in New York City, so I'm exposed to that more than if, uh, than if I lived in Mississippi, probably. But that's the tendency. I, you, you will find, even in casual conversation, uh, especially among young people and not just academics, that they have a sort of knee-jerk reaction that whatever is wrong in the world is probably America's fault somehow. Yeah, and I, uh, of course, live, as my listeners know, at the opposite extreme in the most remote section of Appalachia, in a county with a population density of five people per square mile. So, right. okay, yes, <laughs> very different, yeah. And most of the people here make their living with their hands, farming, logging, construction, etc., or work, you know, in basic government jobs like teaching, snow removal, and the police, right? Not that we have any crime, but we do have a police force nonetheless. Uh, Okay, let's go on to to the next thing, which I thought was quite interesting, is that you distinguish a continuum from xenophobia on one end and okeophobia on the other. Why don't you lay that out for us? Right. So usually this continuum takes place, or we uh, usually a society moves along this continuum as it progresses. So the the sort of natural posture of a society of a society early on, when it's a little more parochial and when older traditions have greater force, is to be more xenophobic. That doesn't mean, of course, that everyone is a is a xenophobe at this time, but there's a certain self reliance, a certain assumption that one's own way is the best because there has been less mingling, less exposure to other civilizations, to other ways of doing things. And so that doesn't mean that necessarily that one is hostile to other civilizations, but there is the general preference for oneself. And of course, that can border to xenophobia quite easily. 
But as a society becomes more successful, as it grows, and the growth of every civilization, sort of every major civilization, involves overcoming outside societies, overcoming enemies uh, on one's frontiers and so on, and interacting with them in certain ways, the more that happens to a society, the more obviously there is going to be a mingling with other ways. And so they will, and so that society will move from xenophobia to finding interest in other ways of doing things. And this happens even if a, if a civilization has utterly defeated another civilization or another society, it will still often find interest in that civilization. The fact that another civilization is defeated doesn't mean that it just goes away, culturally speaking. Of course, a famous example is the Roman Empire. They conquered Greece, uh, and Greece just became another Roman province, and yet at the same time, the Roman elite, the Roman nobility, was absolutely fascinated by Greek culture, even though it was a subjected people. And so that Greek culture started to have an influence in Rome, and some Roman uh, noblemen, some Roman parts of the Roman elite started preferring Greek to more traditional Roman ways. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. We'll get, in, oh, okay, we'll get, into, sure. the, we'll get into the very fascinating story of Rome okay. a little bit later. But yeah, that's a good uh, upfront. So uh, yeah, so a society just becomes more than oikophobic as it starts to uh, be successful because the success itself is related to intermingling with other civilizations. Yeah, yeah I also like the way you laid out the continuum from xenophobia and oikophobia as comparable to the ideas of Aristotelian virtue, where there are two continuums, neither of which are good, right? Being stingy and being uh, completely reckless with one's money while being you know, sort of moderate with one's money would be an Aristotelian virtue. And I think you described it, you, you didn't actually give it a term, but something like self-critique was, yeah, was right, what, you, exactly. what you described as the moderate balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the golden mean, if you will, is is uh, is a big Aristotelian concept, not just in discussions of virtue, also in, in other discussions. For example, when he talks about a perfect... When he talks about uh, a state, for example, he thinks the middle class is appropriate for ruling because they're not jealous of the wealth of the rich, but they're also they're also not anti. They're all, they also don't feel threatened by the poor the way the rich do. So the uh, the golden uh, the golden middle or the golden mean is important. In Aristotle, when it comes to virtue, he thinks that basically, and this is in the Nicomachean Ethics, he talks about how something that is virtuous is the as you said, the middle between two extremes. And so if we look at orcophobia and xenophobia as two extremes, and I think most of us non-orcophobes, the fact that we criticize orcophobia obviously does not mean that we endorse xenophobia. But if we consider these two to be extremes, then we realize that a mild degree of what can become orcophobia, such as self-critique, is good. And a mild degree of what can become xenophobia, such as a preservation of one's own culture, is also uh, something good. And so uh, a moderate amount of self-critique and a moderate amount of wholesome self-preservation, these are all good things. And if either of those things go to an extreme, they become orcophobia or xenophobia, respectively. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. And I think one of the things we should probe on, which I would say perhaps might be my addition to the discussion, is to think about what might be the game theoretic drivers that move systems away from that balanced meme is the the landscape of emergent competitive factions such that we have a tendency to converge towards that moderate middle or do we have tendencies to move to one extreme or the other or is it entirely unstable and does it uh, you know move based on events yeah. uh, I'm going to return to that a few times that was one thing you didn't okay. actually address was kind of the intersection of game theory and the continuum 
Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't talk about game theory in the books. So I'd be curious uh, to hear your uh, your point of view on that. But certainly that sense of competition that leads to ever more outlandish extremes, I think that's very true in academia. Because in academia, there is obviously one is in a state of constant competition with one's peers. And one has the need, as every academic knows, who has to who has filled out uh, application forms or grant for, grant application forms and things like this. And, and uh, gone from uh, university to university, from country to country. As you will tell you, the competition is fierce for, uh, for, uh, for various positions, and this leads to ever greater degrees of outlandishness. Even, and this is not, nothing new, right? Even Thomas Hobbes in the Leviathan, right? I, I quote him in the book. He, he says something similar, that because of, uh, this, because of one's increased level of knowledge and competition with one's peers, one is ever tempted to come up with ever new ideas in order to stand out. And this uh, will lead uh, most certainly to orcophobia, not just orcophobia, it can lead to extremes in, in various areas. But uh, I would say that in terms of the continuum, that sense of competition uh, definitely leads to, uh, to ever more radicalism, as we see uh, in, in a bunch of different areas, um, not just in uh, specifically as it relates to orcophobia, but uh, academics have a, have a great ability to uh, take what is something that is fairly plain and simple and make it convoluted and ridiculous. And, and, and there's actually a very interesting principle in evolutionary theory is not well known that helps drive these extremes. A very interesting insight, which I only heard recently, which is that when a new species comes into being, let's say in biology, it suddenly opens up a new ecological niche, which does hasn't yet actually been filled, which is a species to eat that species. Mm. Right? Isn't that interesting, right? right? And it's actually perhaps one of the drivers for increased complexity in the, at least the biological universe. And you can run the analog in academia. Once there's a mm. theory, there's now a niche for an assistant professor to destroy that theory, right? right. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and if you look at, uh, I mean, for example, now, obviously, uh, Issues of gender, gender studies, the gender spectrum and all of that, that's all very in vogue right now. And if you go to various philosophy departments and classics departments at various universities around the country, uh, you will find a sort of extremism in the sense that everyone is doing research on this because it's the hot topic right now. And if, uh, if in the past, if 20 or 30 years ago, maybe one professor in a particular department of 10 or 12 professors was doing research on gender roles in the Roman Empire, for example, now... 80% of them are doing it. No, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a different driver. That's the uh, the herding, the sheep-like behavior. But it's not obvious to me that the uh, to make your mark driver would push towards either direction. One could imagine going in either direction. You know, if you were to join academia today as a radical opponent of critical gender theory, there's clearly a niche there. But the sheep effect works against it, but not the straight game theory of, of niches, which is kind of interesting, right. which, actually, which actually somewhat hopeful. It's, it's worth keeping in mind that these fashions change. You know, in the 20s, what was the great fashion in the social science? Eugenics, right? right. Which you would describe as the other extreme in some sense. It's sort of an yeah. intellectualization of some of the most extreme xenophobia. Yeah, no, absolutely. And no, that's true. That sheep and those people who uh, who would try to fit into such a niche by going against that orcophobic radicalism, they are either quiet, they don't speak up, of course, for fear of losing their jobs, or they are honest, like me, for example, which is one of the reasons why I'm unemployed. So, 
Yeah, it is interesting. And I'm actually involved in a movement to try to return free speech and free inquiry to, to the university. Uh, yeah. I was one of the founders of the MIT Free Speech Alliance. And there's now quite a number of these university-based organizations that are pushing back against conformity and intolerance of new ideas. So I think the wor- the uh, the worm is starting to turn in that dimension as, as well. But only a little. And surveys we've done indicate that most of the professorate is uh, scared shitless to say what they actually think. Yeah, absolutely. But I do believe it's going to last, it's going to turn quicker than people think. And here's why. Even in the university, I don't believe a majority buy in to this suppression and conformity, but they've been terrorized by the DEI commissars and very aggressive, very obnoxious, essentially neo-Marxists and have been been intimidated. And once they realize that there are other people out there that will support them and defend them, I I believe even at prestigious universities, it's actually a minority, probably a large minority, but it's not what you would think. And, And that that and once people realize that this is sort of a false front that's put, put, been put on by very aggressive proponents of proto-totalitarianism, I think we may be surprised by how fast that that dissolves in, in academia. It's, it's taken 60 years to build it, and I think it'll take a lot less than 60 years to disassemble it. I hope you're right. I, I do sometimes get uh, messages of support from uh, fellow academics, and I uh, try to respond politely. If uh, you're not willing to support me publicly, then you can actually keep your message to yourself. But thank you. I don't put it quite that way. I don't want to be rude to people, but I That's make important. it clear that, uh, yeah, but we do have to try to be uh, public, I think, about what we think. And in, in fact, that's, you know, social change comes from that. Think about yeah. the acceptance of homosexuality, for instance. Right. It was actually, you know, the fact that some initial small number of brave and courageous homosexuals came out of the closet, right? And then yeah. people said, wait a minute, those people are just fine. You know, I like those people. What's wrong with those people? Nothing. Mm-hmm. And very rapidly, the opinion in our society about homosexuality changed. One of the most radical social changes that seems to be sincere and deep. You know, it's interesting that there seems to be no taste at all to reverse that change, except in the most extreme folks. Yeah. No, that's a a development that I would welcome as well. The fact that homosexuals no longer need to be afraid, uh, in most cases anyway, to to publicly be homosexual. But my one uh, issue is that societies in general do tend, at least Western societies, tend to move in a progressive direction. So whereas whereas the opening up of social space for homosexuals is a positive thing. I think that probably happens more easily than a movement in the opposite direction, but I hope you're right. So uh, so we shall see. Yeah, we shall see. And again, it's also useful to remember that historically, the artistic and academic elites weren't necessarily oriented in the ochiophobic direction. You know, think about people like Kipling or Tolkien or Walter Scott, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, this may just be a fashion, a trend. We'll see. Yeah, no, it certainly is a fashion, but... Uh, they still also, those gentlemen that you mentioned, they lived at a time when orcophobia hadn't made quite as many inroads as it has now. But uh, but yeah, if, if one certainly takes a, a broader civilizational viewpoint and looking at many centuries and not just decades, then certainly, yes, it goes in waves. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the, your first example where you go into some detail. One of my favorites are the Greeks. Why don't you tell us how the cycle from xenophobia, constructive self-criticism, to ochiophobia played out with the Greeks. Take some time doing it. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. So 
Yeah, when I look at the Greeks, I focus mainly on the 5th century BC because that was really the time, well, it's it's the heyday of what we call ancient Greece and, and ancient Athens, but it's also a time at which there is very radical social change in Greece. And so if you go from the Persian Wars in the early uh, 5th century BC, that was a time when Greek civilization faced extinction because the Persians were invading. And of course, the Persian Empire was far more vast and, and uh, powerful in many ways than the Greeks, or at least it was assumed to be. And the uh, Athenians even had to evacuate Athens and the, uh, the Persians burned the Acropolis and all of these things. So that was a time of great civilizational crisis for the Greeks. And when a civilization faces such a crisis, for obvious reasons, they tend to band together and protecting one's own civilization becomes paramount. And there is very little thought in such a, in such a time for a civilization, certainly for the Greeks, to think that their own civilization might be worse or, or to think that Persians are superior to them themselves because they're actively fighting the Persians. There, could, there can certainly be traitors, of course, in, in, every, in any era, but by and large, the social fabric is such that everyone bands together uh, against an exterior force. And then, of course, the Greeks prove victorious and uh, especially the Athenians, of course, they start building out their own Athenian empire after victory in the Persian Wars, and they even recapture some country, uh, some land from the Persians. And so the Athenians, the Greeks in general, but certainly the Athenians in particular, uh, become very successful. They establish uh, dominance over uh, surrounding areas uh, around a lot of the uh, islands uh, in the Mediterranean. And this, this newfound power leads to a sense of security, right? Because Athens is so powerful and has such a magnificent fleet that it wouldn't occur to anyone to uh, try to uh, invade Athens, right? Until, of course, uh, Sparta invades Attica in the Peloponnesian War. But essentially, when Athens has established this great sense of security, this great sense of power, there is much more room for intellectuals, especially, to start analyzing their own culture, right? The, it's no longer the case that everyone has to take their shield and spear down from the wall and run off to battle. There is much more time for leisure, for self-observation, and this is also a time, of course, when a lot of sciences, uh, a lot of the various branches of knowledge that we take for granted today are established in the first place. And so when that happens, there's more room for intellectuals to sort of develop a, a certain sense of self-righteousness, to look at themselves as superior to their countrymen or to their compatriots, because the competition is no longer with the Persians. The competition is now with other Greeks and other Athenians because we all need competition, right? The human psyche does need some sort of antagonist in order to flourish. Now, that antagonist can be a very serious antagonist, like uh, a, a Persian army uh, that's uh, burning down your home, or it can be just your neighbor who is earning more money than you are, or a colleague who uh, is smarter than you, or whatever it is. We all need some kind of an antagonist. And so if we don't have a major exterior antagonist, the antagonists become other uh, our fellows at home in our own society. And so that happens in Athens. And it's essentially, it's mostly toward the end of the fourth century that these tendencies start to, uh, fourth century BC, that these tendencies start to develop in ancient Greece. Socrates is a major figure, but if actually, it actually becomes more extreme after Socrates, late fourth century, sorry, late fifth century and early fourth century uh, BC where you have various figures who essentially start to question traditional Greek ways. They start to question uh, Greek religion. Uh, there is some tendency of this already in uh, the sort of second half of the 5th century BC in Attic drama, especially 
the uh, the drama of Euripides uh, is somebody I talk a little bit about in the book. How some of his plays question traditional Greek religion in certain ways, question the uh, the goodness of the gods, or at least of some of the gods. And this is I should point out that when I say when I explain that a civilization starts to move toward orcophobia, this is not always to be understood as a condemnation, right? I, I absolutely adore Euripides. I think he's one of the greatest poets ever. But it is, one can still see, even if one appreciates their work, one can still see how the civilization is moving toward orcophobia because it starts to question its own traditions. If a civilization, if, a, if an enemy civilization is marching on your city, you have no choice basically but to sacrifice to your gods and to hope that they will save you, right? There's no atheist in a foxhole, as they say, right? So this sort of is a universal across civilizations, you will start to sacrifice to your gods, whether you believe in them or not, and you will hope that they exist. You hope that they have your back when you're about to be killed by an enemy force. Uh, but when that's no longer the case, one no longer, quote unquote, needs the gods, so to speak, emotionally. And so it becomes much more easy, becomes much easier to question them and to start uh, thinking of other ways of doing things. Uh, certainly, by this time, there has, of course, also been cultural influence coming from other parts of the Eastern Mediterranean through trade, through Athenian power, and so on. There is cultural influence coming from Persia, from ancient Egypt, from various areas. Plato, for example, he talks about the uh, the Egyptians in his own work and says that the the he says that the Greek culture is like a baby culture because the the ancient Egyptians uh, are much more ancient than we are, and so on. So there is that tendency that comes both through security, uh, through power, and through influence from uh, from other cultures. And so slowly but surely, this is a process that takes place over a few decades uh, at the end of the 5th century and, and early uh, 4th century BC. Intellectuals in Athens start to, they start to reject their own religion. They reject any, any claim to specialness that the Greeks have. They no longer consider Greek culture superior to other civilizations, whereas uh, half a century earlier, it would have been taken for granted by almost everyone that, yes, of course, we Greeks are superior to other cultures. But that sort of starts to disappear. Now, since Greek democracy isn't as democratic, so to speak, isn't as egalitarian as our democracy is today, you know, they still have slaves, women can't vote, and so on. Because of that, that sort of diffused egalitarianism that I mentioned earlier isn't so extreme yet in ancient Greece. And so orcophobia there isn't as diffused. This is still very much an elite phenomenon in ancient Athens so it's not the sort of thing that I mentioned earlier that you could just chat with somebody in a bar and they will uh, end up being orcophobic, right? That's not the case really in ancient Greece, right? But it is an elite phenomenon. One sees it. There are uh, certain names that could be mentioned uh, like uh, Hippias of Elis, for example, uh, Diogenes who, who founds uh, the Cynic School. There, I, I talk about several different names, uh, several examples in the book. And, and these gentlemen start to reject more and more their own heritage and they start to play out the cultural norms of other civilizations uh, at the expense of their own. So, yeah. One thing you didn't mention in that run, which I always found interesting, is relationship between ochiophobia and decadence. Mm -hmm. And if I think about, you know, a first clear, you know, or I don't know, first, but an exemplary decadent character at that turn. Uh, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it, but it's uh, the uh, student of Socrates, Alcii. Alcibiades, I guess it is. Alcibiades, yeah, usually. Alcibiades, say, yeah. that's how you pronounce yes. it. Yeah. Yes. Clearly a decadent character. Yes. And 
of course, led Athens to its disaster and then turned coat, right? So basically a really loathsome character. And yeah. but yet apparently brilliant and you know beautiful and all these things. And and so it seems to me that the emergence of that kind of decadence is a is a sign. Absolutely, yeah. Alcibiades is a tricky character because, as you said, he uh, he's a turncoat and he switches side so many times that uh, it's difficult to say. It's it's probably easier to say that the man had absolutely no principles and he just did whatever was best for him at the moment. That's why I would I wouldn't necessarily call him an orcophobe, right? Because orcophobes we might think they're wrong, but they but they tend to be reasonably principled in the sense that they really really dislike their own civilization. I don't think Alcibiades really dislikes Athens as such. I think he just doesn't really care either way and just does what's best for him at the moment. But the point about decadence, yeah, that's certainly true. And it does go hand in hand. I, I think you're right to make the connection with Okophobia because, of course, as the civilization turns more powerful, wealthier, and so on, there is, of course, more room for uh, for hedonism, for, uh, for leisure, all of these things, for pleasure. And certainly someone who has that wealth and who is able to engage in hedonism, in a lifestyle of pleasure, as Alcibiades certainly did, he doesn't, quote-unquote, need the gods, right, as I mentioned earlier. He doesn't need his own traditions. He has everything that he has. His life, he has his life made, basically. And so certainly that kind of decadence, yes, does... It's not identical to okophobia, right, but it certainly often goes hand-in-hand hand with okophobia, yeah. And I think it's interesting that they, uh, they aren't logically related, but they seem to be correlated. Yeah, absolutely. And that's another reason, of course, why it tends to uh, go, why academics also, or, or the elite more generally, tend to be more ecophobic because they do have, by and large, an easier lifestyle than, uh, uh, than farmers or, uh, or lower middle class people. Now, before we leave the Greeks, Aristotle, right at that point, uh, even towards the end of that point, nonetheless was quite strong on the superiority of the Greeks. And as we talked about earlier, you know, did have this concept of the golden mean with respect to virtues that uh, he mm -hmm. tended very much not to be an extremist about very much anything. Yes. Where do you put Aristotle in this discourse amongst the Greeks? Yeah, Aristotle, uh, I admire Aristotle for many reasons, and, and this is one of them. The fact that he was able to analyze his own civilization and question question ancient tradition and custom, and yet understand the value and the beauty of his own civilization without rejecting it, right? Aristotle does not, he's not an atheist, right? He certainly does believe in a higher power, but he says that, you know, the whole, all the stories about, you know, Athena and Zeus and Athena riding out of Zeus's head in armor and Apollo, all these things, that's stories we tell to children, right? They're, that's nobody, nobody in his right mind would believe those things, right? So he's able to say that on the one hand, and yet, on the other hand, still see the beauty of Greek civilization, of Greek poetry that involves these myths, right, without, without rejecting it. So he certainly believes in the greatness of Greek civilization, as you say. So I put him basically in, in the so-called second phase of this civilizational spectrum. So I, I essentially distinguish three phases in the book. And, and they're sort of overlapping, but, but they do exist. One can see them separately. And this holds not just for the Greeks, but for other civilizations, which is that in the first phase, People just take it for granted that their own civilization is the best, no other possibilities even conceivable to them. And then in the second phase, and that's where I would put Aristotle, is that is when people do look at other civilizations and, and can appreciate them to some extent and also do question their own, their own traditions and their own culture to some extent, but still conclude that their own culture has greatness and beauty and they're loyal to it. And then finally, the third phase, of course, which is the, then the, uh, the full-blown orcophobic phase, where the greatness and beauty of one's own culture are rejected. 
So since they overlap, right, Aristotle is fairly late in this development, chronologically speaking. So he certainly lives at an era when the when the third phase has already begun, but he is still able himself to hold on to to the paradigm of the second phase. So they they do overlap, uh, chronologically speaking, to some extent. All right, let's move on to Rome. You know, in, in some sense, Rome was very xenophobic for a very long time. And yet they were also quite open to uh, absorbing ideas from other people. I mean, they from the very earliest days, right? They brought ideas in from the, the other tribes right around Rome, the Lat- Latium area. They yeah. borrowed a lot from the Etruscans. You know, they seemed to borrow from everybody. And yet they had a very high opinion of their own civilization for, you know, seven, eight hundred years. So maybe yeah. tell, us, tell us about your thoughts about how Rome fits your model. Yeah. So Rome, yeah, Rome is interesting uh, in many ways. So of all the of all these sort of case studies that I have in the book, the various civilizations that I discuss, Rome is the one where we find, I would say, the least oikophobia. And indeed, uh, as you say, uh, they uh, they uh, thought themselves the best for many centuries. And and there are various reasons why they have the least oikophobia. They have a much stronger sense of duty, and they have a much their society has a much uh, stronger patriarchal model than uh, ancient Athens did. So that's another reason that patriarchy is a bulwark, if you will, against okophobia. But I still discuss Rome because uh, the tendency that sort of moved toward okophobia, and in some cases even full-blown okophobia, is visible in Rome as well, just that it doesn't reach the expression of okophobia, doesn't become as strong in Rome as as it had as had been the case in ancient Athens, and certainly as will be the case in modern times. The Romans, as, as you also correctly point out, they they had a genius really for adopting what was useful for from other civilizations. They do this in all kinds of areas. Really early on, they see something that is useful and then they adopt it. And that's part of how they're able to rise and become the great power of the Mediterranean because they're not afraid to reject some something useful simply because it's part of another culture. Uh, and while still uh, remaining, as you say, loyal to their own civilization. But once the part of the problem with Rome, right? So in the late Republic is first of all that it becomes too uh, too great, too large, simply. So the the realm can no longer be ruled effectively. That's how eventually through a series of civil wars it becomes an empire because because the realm basically just needs one strong ruler to tie everything together. Uh, factionalism is too strong in the Republican model, and so it becomes an empire. But Rome both in the late Republic and then certainly in the empire has become so powerful that we see again the same pattern of a leisure class being able to question its own traditions. And I mentioned earlier the role of the Greeks in this regard, and this is really crucial. The Romans had the intelligence, if you will, the, uh, the cultural taste to realize that this people they had conquered, the Greeks, were culturally far superior to them themselves, which in and of itself, of course, is is an example of this ability of the Romans to adopt useful ideas from the outside. They have that ability and they do so with the Greeks. But, uh, and this happens already in the Republic, right? Because they they conquer Greece uh, well over a century before, about a century, uh, yeah, about a century, a little over a century before they become an empire. So this is certainly the case also in the late Republic that young Roman noblemen, they start to become seduced by Greek ideas. They become interested in Greek philosophy, especially, but also in other Greek areas, but especially in philosophy and rhetoric. And so when you start to explore Greek philosophy, and the Greeks, of course, by this time in history, will have explored pretty much all philosophical questions that could possibly be explored. I mean, even now, 
well over 2,000 years later, we're still exploring the philosophical questions that the Greeks first opened up for us. And so when that's the case, of course, you have to be open as a, as a philosopher or, or as a student of philosophy, as also in the Roman Empire, you have to be open to the idea of looking at your own tradition objectively and, and with, a, with a skeptical eye. Otherwise, you cannot philosophize. You cannot consider the questions that the Greeks raised. And so that becomes a threat to, to, uh, to Roman civilization. And there is a, a reaction, just like we have a reaction now, there is a, a sort of a conservative reaction to this. I mentioned uh, Cato the Elder as, as maybe the most paradigmatic example, uh, but there are others later on also, like uh, Juvenal, for example, in the empire, even Cicero himself to some extent. And so there is that reaction, but as the society continues, as it progresses, we, there is that self-questioning. You see it also then well into the empire and the historians, for example, since the Roman Empire, this, this theme I mentioned before of intermingling with other cultures, that's of course even more extreme in the Roman Empire because they conquer all of these other cultures. Syria, Egypt, Greece, all of these various places with their own already developed cultural norms, with their own uh, developed to some extent scientific and philosophical bodies of knowledge, they all become a part of the Roman Empire. And so the access to this knowledge becomes uh, much more easier for the Roman elite, at least, to, uh, to attain. And so the home religion, which was created in, uh, in an agrarian time, uh, in a much simpler time in certain ways, becomes something that is rather quaint. Uh, if uh, Roman religion is very, uh, is very emphatic of duty, of obligation, of ritual, and if you're living, you mentioned decadence, if you're living in a wealthy city in Rome and you have all kinds of luxuries around you, that religion is no longer, that religion no longer fits your lifestyle. And then it becomes much easier to start flirting with foreign cults. And this happens all the time. Juvenal complains about it, right? He says, uh, uh, Roman women nowadays, they, uh, they pray to the Egyptian goddess of Isis and they go to Jewish soothsayers instead of sacrificing to our Roman gods because these new civilizations the Jews, the Egyptians, they're all part of, they're all Romans now, right? They're all part of the Roman Empire. And so in such a situation, it becomes very difficult to hold on to traditional ways. And so, and you see that in, in certain, uh, and then in certain other uh, writers and philosophers, uh, you see it in Tacitus, in, uh, in Seneca. Uh, and again, uh, this is not automatically a condemnation of those. I don't like Seneca, to be honest, but I, I love Tacitus. So it's, uh, I'm not rejecting someone simply because they show ecophobic tendencies, but you do see that tendency developing as well. But as I said, it's not as extreme in Rome because Rome still has a vast empire to manage. It still continues to be a rather militaristic culture, rather patriarchal culture, the pater familias, right, the head of the household in ancient Rome. It's still a very strong figure. And so that that holds the, the most extreme excesses of ochophobia in check. Yeah. And I think the other one that you brought out, I thought was interesting, was that one early crack that could have moved Rome in a more ochophobic direction didn't was in the contention between, amongst the elites, Epicureanism and Stoicism. Stoicism actually won out. I think that's a really actually interesting exemplar of kind of a frozen accident, perhaps, in, in, in yeah. social evolution. Right. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. Stoicism is as I say in the book, it's more suited to the Roman temperament because Stoicism, of course, has this, this sense of duty uh, and virtue, the fact that you should do what's right, even if it's difficult or painful. And the Romans sort of were like that. And so Stoicism becomes more popular and Stoicism is more easily adaptable to the um, ambitions of an empire. 
that's why you, of course, you even have Marcus Aurelius, right? A Roman emperor who is uh, a Stoic, more or less anyway, and a lot of great noblemen who are, Sto- uh, who are Stoics. Epicureanism does make inroads, certainly in Roman society, but it, it never becomes as powerful as as Stoicism because it just, or, or as influential as Stoicism because it just isn't as suited to the Roman temperament because Epicurus, and it's not even so much about a life of pleasure. Of course, Epicurus, by, by emphasizing pleasure, he really, he really just meant the absence of pain, right? He meant spiritual tranquility and so on. Uh, but Epicurus also emphasizes that in order to achieve spiritual tranquility, you, you should withdraw from public life because public life is full of uncertainty and pain and so on. And that simply doesn't that simply doesn't suit a power that has a realm that has a vast empire to manage, and so for that reason as well, Stoicism remains more popular in the end. Interesting. Well, you you mentioned Eastern religion. Now, eventually, the Roman Empire was captured by an Eastern religion, and if at least if you believe Gibbon was brought down by it. Yes. Talk a little bit about the very odd and one would have been hard to predict hundred years prior the conquest of Rome by uh, Christianity. And what that meant, right? Yeah, no, it's um, it's interesting. Gibbon is always uh, is interesting on this point. I, I think he might be a little um, too focused just on Christianity, but I think, but he certainly makes a lot of uh, good points. I think I, overall, I don't think he's wrong. I guess it's just a question of how much one wants to emphasize one aspect over another. But uh, certainly, the influence of Eastern religions is something that. Also, it comes in modern times. Right? If you notice among a lot of oikophobes, they reject Christianity because Christianity is now at least considered to be what's Western, that is what is traditional, and they will flirt with things like Buddhism, right, as being probably the most popular Eastern religion among oikophobes. Obviously, a Buddhist isn't there, thereby ipso facto a, an oikophobe. But Buddhism is very popular among oikophobes, among people who have rejected their own religion, because we all do have some kind of spiritual need, right? The human being does need something generally that is higher than he himself. That's uh, an emotional need that most human beings have. And so if you reject your own Christian religion, then uh, Buddhism or, or other Eastern religions have a certain uh, attractiveness by being something different, uh, something that is still something higher to aspire to, but that is different from the people at home. And one has the need to distinguish oneself from one's peers. Uh, like Even Freud talks about this, right? The narcissism of small differences, he calls it, the need to always be a little different from the people who are right here at home. And so an Eastern religion will be a very useful tool in that. But yeah, so uh, regarding, the, um, regarding the, uh, the Romans specifically, various Eastern religions, so you mentioned uh, ISIS and Judaism, and then of course Christianity, they all become influential in ver- to varying degrees in Rome. Now, Christianity, it's not, it's not so much that Christianity by its own nature brings down the Roman Empire. I think it's more because it is what is, it's, it's because it's not Roman. It's, Christianity is also not suited to the establishment uh, or to the rule of a large empire. I talk a little bit about that in the book, namely the fact that if Christian, Christianity, of course, uh, certainly in the beginning was a pacifist religion, it can certainly be said. Uh, and pacifism is not practical if you're a great empire. If you're a great empire, you do have to fight wars from now uh, every every now and then. Christian later in the late Roman Empire and certainly afterwards, Christian thinkers did realize this, right? And so they actually started to write about. I mentioned Ambrosius, Augustine, right later on Thomas Aquinas, as some Christian writers who do realize that well, actually we do need to develop concepts of 
when it's permissible to actually fight. We can't be pure pacifists. It's just not practical. And so that, that does help then later on, of course. But Christianity itself, by that time, it was already too late for the Roman Empire. Christianity is... But so it's not... It's not so much um, that Christianity itself brings down the Roman Empire. It's the fact that it's something alien that brings down the Roman Empire, something that is not suited to the to the Roman social fabric. The factionalism and the fragmentation that happened in the late Republic happens in the Empire as well. Just that it happens slower in the Empire because there is a much stronger central authority that is keeping everything together. But ultimately, Christianity, along with other factors, and that's why I say that. I say sometimes, I say that maybe Gibbon emphasizes Christianity a little too much, but Christianity, along with these other factors, such as a too vast realm, uh, and then there are also, of course, biological, physical factors, uh, the uh, exhaustion of the soil in Italy and so on, uh, many other factors that help to, uh, to, to bring down the Roman Empire, and the fact that influx of Eastern peoples into Rome itself. They're not, they're no longer loyal to Rome, right? You have a lot of senators who don't even speak Latin, right? They speak Greek because they come from, from Syria or from Greek speaking parts of the empire. All of that together, Christianity is certainly a big element in that, but all of that together helps create a situation where a unified central authority is no longer feasible. And so the Roman empire finally collapses. Yeah. Uh, no, I, you know, I think, I would maybe emphasize give it a little bit more in in, mm-hmm. in Nietzsche as well, right? I mean, oh, origi- yes. the actual Christianity of Jesus Christ and the early apostles was a completely incompatible with the Roman Empire, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, Nietzsche refers to it as a slave morality, and basically it was. Now, what's yeah. so interesting about Christianity is that it has morphed into all kinds of strange things, and that then we'll go next to your next section, which is. In the West's history, at least, I think what you would describe as the longest non-ochiophobic epoch, which was the Middle Ages. And here's here's this very interesting amalgam of this pacifistic, communistic, slave morality merging with warlike, dominant, aggressive, patriarchal Germanic tribes and produced this very curious medieval civilization. Why don't you tell us what you think about that? Yeah, so in Christianity, as you say, it's it's difficult even to speak of quote unquote Christianity, right? Because it's Christianity has found so many different expressions according to different times and places. But the people who succeed the Roman Empire, right? They are barbarians essentially, as you say. You say warlike tribes. I mean, they are barbarians, and but they become Christianized and they then lay the foundation of, uh, slowly of the modern West. But the reason why we don't have orcophobia in the Middle Ages is more uh, economic, I would say, than anything, because it we you don't have... Uh, I talked before uh, in relation to Greece and Rome about the importance of a sense of safety and security and wealth and so on uh, as, as catalysts of orcophobia, because you need to have those things in order to have the leisure and, and the access to knowledge required to question your own civilization, those things don't really take place in the Middle Ages, right? You don't, the, uh, most people are illiterate, right? So the access to knowledge is very limited. Mostly it's just uh, people living in monasteries and so on who are able to read and write. And uh, you don't have strong central authorities, which means that there aren't strong cities, strong civilizations that can protect their citizens where people have the leisure uh, to engage in self-critique. And so those are really, I think, the main reasons why we don't have ochrophobia in the Middle Ages. Christianity itself, of course, develops in such a way that it becomes easier 
uh, to manage an empire or a state, even uh, with Christianity as a religion, as as you said before, Jesus himself would uh, would uh, would not have been a very good Marcus Aurelius. I think he would not have gone on uh, on uh, campaigns to conquer uh, uh, Germanic tribes and so on. But I think those are the main reasons we don't have ochophobia in the Middle Ages. Christianity morphs into from having been something subversive and pacifistic in the Roman Empire. It morphs into the traditional and the 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 established, and indeed, in, obviously, in many cases, the violent. And now, in fairness, one has to say that a lot of, of course, the violence persecuted um, uh, carried out by Christians is in direct contravention of most Christian philosophy. Uh, I think that should be said. Uh, nonetheless, uh, certainly, um, even philosophically, more justifications for violence do develop in Christianity. That's certainly true in the Middle Ages, but. So Christianity takes on the role of what it had helped to overthrow. Christianity becomes that which is traditional, that which is established, and so on. So the subversives in the Roman Empire were the Christians, and now it is the traditionalists who are the Christians, and the subversives are yet other Eastern religions, for example, such as Buddhism, and not, not only, but other influences from other civilizations. You know, it's quite interesting that the equivalent of the intellectuals are kind of under the gun in the monastery, right? Which is, again, probably wasn't designed, but the result makes it relatively unlikely for the free thinkers to develop amongst the intellectuals, though a few of them did, as we know, but yeah. not very many, right? And they were generally found out and burned at the stake fairly rapidly. <laughs> exactly. We have our own modern version of that today, uh, slightly less violent, but... Uh... Yeah, also Twitter. quite silencing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Twitter. Yeah. Though the, the nice right. thing about Twitter is you can just say, fuck those people. And that's right. my and that's my <laughs> advice to academics or anybody else that comes under attack by the Twitter mob, is there's absolutely nothing that says you can't raise your two middle fingers and just say, fuck you, I do not care. And I, yeah, I sure I'll, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'll have reason to uh, to remember that <laughs> in the future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, certainly my response. I don't give a shit yeah. if a bunch of Wokies want to scream and yell, fuck them. Uh, hear that, Wokies? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we'll uh, we'll see how. Uh, yeah, hopefully they'll uh, they'll help as long as well. Of course, I, one won't even be able to shout that because Twitter will probably uh, cancel one's account. Yeah, though uh, Twitter's not bad as long as you stay away yeah. from certain hot buttons. But right. which I don't like uh, the fact that they do that. But you know, in yeah. this space, there, no one's going to kick you off Twitter for arguing about uh, okeophobia. Right. No, that's probably true. That's uh, well, at least now because most people haven't heard the word. Maybe if the Twitter overlords uh, start uh, catching on to the concept, maybe they'll crack down. We'll see. Interesting. Uh, now let's move into a little bit more a generalization of this idea of I think about sort of this is the space where you got freedom and pluralism versus not, and you have religion versus skepticism, and somehow those things are a field in which. Okeophobia or xenophobia is either upregulated or downregulated. You want to speak speak to that, and yeah, I think yeah, because you do talk about those at various places that more freedom tends to lead to more okeophobia, etc., mm-hmm. you know, and more religion team leads to less okeophobia in general, etc. Right. You know, what, what's that dynamic look like? Yeah. So, uh, and this is this is part of the reason why I also say that. I'm not always condemning okophobia. I mean, I do condemn okophobia, basically, but I try to take a little more nuanced view to it because there are aspects to okophobia or to the development of okophobia that I think are basically positive, but that, of course, the human being or the human human society does not uh, know the golden mean, right? To go back to Aristotle once again, so 
society always goes into one extreme or other. But, and I say this because, of course, many aspects of freedom and of the development of freedom in a society are things that I myself appreciate. I myself, obviously, I'm a beneficiary of freedom of speech and so on, uh, as, as we all are. But the more you have of that, the more freedom you have, the more freedom of speech, the more, as I said before, the more access to, uh, to knowledge, but also the more, uh, the greater your ability to, uh, to blare your opinion out loud, the easier uh, it becomes for that society that has those things to uh, lapse into orcophobia. You're not going to have a lot of orcophobia in North Korea, for example, right? Uh, there might be people who, uh, who secretly dislike their situation in North Korea, but they certainly can't talk about it out loud. And a truly, a people that is genuinely oppressed or that genuinely doesn't have any freedom generally doesn't even know that it doesn't have those things. A, g- a genuinely oppressed people usually doesn't realize how oppressed it is. And so the fact that everyone today talks about how oppressed they are, it means that they're not oppressed. Because usually genuine oppression means that you, you don't even have the ability to think in such patterns. And uh, if you're genuinely oppressed, you don't want to be oppressed, but everybody wants to be oppressed today. It's a status thing, which shows that indeed they are in fact not oppressed. But so the more freedom you have in a society, to get back more specifically to your question, the um, the easier it is for everyone to self-question. You always have the more intellectual room you have to move to uh, to flirt with other opinions and to engage in discussion with other people, uh, the more subversive you can become. Once again, a reason why we have more ochrophobic subversiveness among academics, because they are the ones with the loudest megaphones, usually. Not just academics, but you know, journalists, people who have, uh, who have large media followings and so on, have platforms. They are the ones who have the greatest freedom to speak. They are the ones who can show their specialness by self-questioning. Uh, there's nothing interesting in just confirming what has always been the case. You show that you're different, you show that you're special by saying that, well, I actually am above all these things that you other people prefer, all these traditional uh, parochial norms and, and customs and so on. And so the more freedom you have, the more ochophobia you're going to have. And that is, of course, why Athens, ancient Athens, really is the first example, certainly here in the West, of ochophobia, because it is the first democracy. Uh, that's, uh, that's very significant. They are the, Athens is the place where people can first engage in quite free intellectual exchange without having to worry about being shut down by the government or, or by religious authorities. Um, and so uh, that dynamic continues uh, into the present day. Okay. Uh, with respect to freedom, we'll get to religion next. This is very interesting, I think, in this game theory framework. Seems to me it's not obvious that freedom should cause a movement towards ochophobia. Now, it should allow crystals of ochophobia to form in the solution but not necessarily to propagate. And that, in, you know, if you take a strong enlightenment view, and I noticed that you put a few taps on Popper, you know, like you like Popper yes. too much. And my yeah. take is, you know, at least my naive take, is that Popper's open society could be, if it's true, truly sincere, could be the mechanism by which we stay in this golden mean and don't swing either way, and, and both exist crystals of ochiophobia, crystals of xenophobia, and various syntheses. What's wrong with that picture? Uh, no, I think that's a largely accurate picture. Maybe I shouldn't get into Popper too much because we'll be here for another two hours. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the problem with, the problem with uh, well, quickly, the problem with someone like Popper, you mentioned the Enlightenment, and, and Popper is to a great extent an Enlightenment figure. Um, I mean, not historically, but philosophically speaking, very much uh, an Enlightenment figure because he 
believes, as many members of the Enlightenment erroneously believed, that not only is it good to be to some degree progressive and to reject the stultifying or, or retarding effects of certain parochial religious norms and beliefs, but these progressive beliefs that we have are endorsed by logic and science. That's a very typical, and, and that's, I think, a lot of people when they talk about the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment has sort of become a new idol, a new religious idol. Everybody worships the Enlightenment, on both left and right. Everybody calls upon the Enlightenment saying that, you know, we should get back to Enlightenment ideals and so on. Some of the Enlightenment was very good, there's no question about that, but one aspect of the Enlightenment that people ignore, and it's some, something I tried to emphasize in the book and also in relation to Popper, is that the Enlightenment, in addition to emphasizing science and reason and so on, also, in many respects, thought that these things, uh, science and reason and logic, militate in favor of progressivism, and they do not. They do not. Philosophy can militate in favor of progressivism. Science and reason do not. And, and that's, uh, I think, a trap into which Popper falls to a great extent and which makes him ridicule and look down on his philosophical opponents as somehow being anti-scientific uh, or, or, or irrational, which, which they are not. You can disagree with them, but it doesn't mean that they're, that they're irrational or anti-scientific. But in terms of the, the, the sort of image of crystals that you painted, I think that's accurate. It's just that something that you also said before, it's the at least when where we in our current society today, it's the orcophobic crystals that are either bigger or at least louder. They're more visible than the xenophobic crystals. And of course, the reason for that is that, as we said before, if the academics and the elite, the journalists and, and uh, the urbanites and so on, if they're the ones who are orcophobic, they're obviously the ones who have access to the largest megaphones. And so if you travel to, to your part of the country, uh, obviously a, a different uh, picture would emerge from certainly from where I live. Uh, but we don't hear as much from them. And certainly foreigners who are looking in at the United States don't hear as much from them. And so uh, the the okophobic crystals, I think, uh, are, are more um, uh, troublesome for that reason. And and again, it's it's also the fact that xenophobia exists, xenophobia exists before okophobia, it then continues and exists alongside okophobia once okophobia has has come around, but Okophobia, I think, takes the cultural upper hand, and you see that in the in the in the political development of the country as well. Because even the "quote unquote" xenophobic crystals, or the or even the reactionaries and people who are strongly on the right and, and con conservatives or so-called conservatives, they tend, if you compare them with conservatives from a hundred years ago or even from fifty years ago, they are not as conservative by and large. The so the entire structure itself has moved to the left, which means that. Even though we have opposing crystals in this mix, they are not exactly uh, what they were half a century or a century ago, or even even 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, clearly, cultural liberalism has won, right? Yeah. Young conservatives still want to have sex and smoke dope, right? Most of them. I mean, exactly. there are some extremes that don't. And, you know, again, the question is, is that a good idea or a bad idea? It's, you know, or is it just driven by hedonism? Hard. It's an interesting mm -hmm. question, but we're not going to be, we don't have time to answer. I'd love to have that discussion sometime, but not today. Yeah. Uh, let's now move on to religion. Here's a quote from the book. The evidence of history thus points to a nexus of civilizational weakening, religious weakening, and okeophobic rise. And particularly the link there between civilizational weakening, religious weakening, and okeophobia. You say many times that religion is very important. And yet, I thought this was interesting, you admit that you personally are an atheist. Yes. 
Yeah. So uh, it's, uh, and, and that goes back to what I said before. I, one reason why I admire Aristotle, right? He was able to question his own, his own religion and, and uh, his own, uh, the, the religious and cultural traditions of his own society while yet seeing beauty and greatness in those things and, and, and remaining loyal to his civilization. So that is, I, I guess I would say, a, a fairly good description of me in this particular context. So I do not, I actually, well, I was raised religious actually, but I, I rejected the uh, religion as a teenager. And, and as you say, now I'm an atheist. But if we look at history and if we look at our own society, I, there's absolutely no question that religion serves a purpose. And then, of course, some people will co- say that that's condescending and say, well, you say that religion is good for you people. I'm above it. Right. I don't yeah, believe like in- Voltaire. Right. Voltaire says, right, exactly. I don't believe, but I want my lawyer and my servants to be Christian so, that, <laughs> so they won't right. steal my spoons. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Classic, classic Voltaire. But so, uh, but, but my answer to that is that it's, it doesn't really matter if it's condescending or not, because I mean, I'm a philosopher, right? I'm not a politician, my, uh, or, or a pundit for that matter. My goal is not to, uh, to, uh, to gain voters. Uh, my goal is to get as close to the truth as I can in my work. And even if I don't believe anything, uh, a particular thing myself, there's no question that religion is a boon. Not all religions are the same, but religion, certainly here for us, Christianity, and, and to some extent Judaism, they are a boon for our society. I say to some extent Judaism, since we're, that's a minority religion, but Christianity is a boon to society because by and large, it keeps us non-orchophobic, it keeps us appreciating our own heritage. So when religion is rejected, there is a weakening of, uh, you in that quote you mentioned, right, there's a, a nexus of religious weakening and civilizational weakening and orchophobic rise. That's because religion and civilization, they go together because every civilization without exception, as I also talk about in the book, is religious in its founding. Some people say the United States is not a Christian nation, right? Officially, it might not be, but there's absolutely no question that the United States in the beginning was much more God-fearing and much more Christian than it then became. Uh, anyone who says the opposite is, uh, I would say, <laughs> I was about to say is a revisionist, but you uh, sound like you're not, maybe not agreeing entirely. Yeah, no. And, and I actually have a little section here to talk about that. So yeah, let's talk about oh, it I now. Okay, so uh, sure we get, okay. So we'll go, uh, we can talk about that right now. Okay. Now, with respect to the common people, I'm not sure, actually. An awful lot of people in the frontier seem to be relatively indifferent to religion. They had Indians to fight and ground to scrap out, etc. They weren't very religious. High rates of out-of-wedlock birth, all kinds of things. In the cities, maybe less. Right. But the founders of the United States... And let me back up a little bit. You know, my position, I'm an Enlightenment guy. I'm putting the Enlightenment flag down. I fight for the Enlightenment uh, against both the alt-right and the uh, neo-medievalists, as I call them, on the right. What's the guy there? You know, that's the uh, big guy on that. And certainly the postmodernists on the left, right? Who yeah. You say that the post, the left adheres to the Enlightenment. I say most, if you go past a certain point, you go three clicks past Joe Biden and you get into postmodern <laughs> land, those people are no longer my people. Those are no longer Enlightenment people. And I will stand firm with my knives and my guns to fight for the Enlightenment. And I got plenty, yeah. as regular listeners know, right? right. And, and I would say that America was a high Enlightenment experiment. Mm-hmm. You know, people like Jefferson. Uh, here's another point. We actually had non-Christian presidents. John Adams was a non-Christian. Jefferson was a non-Christian. Madison was an outright atheist, right? So we had three non-Christian presidents in a row in the early days. 
Uh, we haven't had a real non-Christian president since, with the uh, possible exception of Abraham Lincoln, whose religious beliefs are, well, he's, he was certainly a non-Christian. Uh, whether he's an atheist or not, it's unclear. And then the question is, what do you think of a Quaker? Is a Quaker a Christian or not? You know, if you count Quakers, uh, then Nixon was a Christian. If not, then you'd say not. But anyway, in the early days, being non-Christian was not a bar at all to being president of the United States. And I would say it depends a little bit on what you mean by non-Christian. I think if someone, if if in those days someone had come and said outright that he's a Buddhist or a Muslim, uh, I think that the, that would have been a very different story. They uh, some, I mean, certainly true that uh, some presidents and and some founding fathers in general uh, took their religion very lightly, and then some some rejected it outright. But I do um, I, I do think that it's uh, as a politician, though uh, I. Uh, I would say that overall um, uh, appeals to God uh, and and so on to a, to a higher power and to a, a level of spirituality that we still have to some extent in the United States today. I think I think we're still much more common in those days than uh, than they are now. I don't know. I mean, uh, I happened to read an interesting poll recently that said that you know ninety five percent of Americans would vote for a black person. I think ninety four a homosexual for president, but only. 63% for an atheist and only 45% for a Muslim. And so it's, you know. But I don't think that would have been different in, in, in those days. Uh, and in fact, I mean, atheism is on the rise in, in this country. I mean, we have more atheists today than we did uh, 100 or 200 years ago. So I think to some extent, it's, it's maybe a question of appearances a little bit. But uh, so, yeah, yeah dep- a bit, like I said, it depends on what you mean by non-Christian. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, in terms of the idea of religion is indispensable for you know society, you know, said by the atheist, right? Yes. Yeah, often, you know, you know that's you know what's often known as the noble lie, right? Or I like to make um, it. A- yeah. Well, I don't. I mean, I don't believe in the noble lie for a philosopher, right? I mean, Plato talks about the right the Platonic lie or the noble lie. As a philosopher, he says the philosopher king has to lie to his people. I mean, I, as a philosopher, I always say the truth. I mean, or or what I believe, what I hope is the truth. And that's why I say openly in the book that I'm an atheist. But uh, but yeah, certainly a politician might have to uh, engage in a, in a noble lie. But uh, it's, uh, again, uh, I don't uh, <laughs> I don't flatter myself to thinking that most people will ever know of my book anyway. So it's a probably, <laughs> even if I tell the truth as far as to the best of my ability, I think it's probably pretty harmless because most people won't know. Uh, I more cynically refer to the noble lie as the Santa Claus argument. You know, Santa Claus actually does make four-year-olds good in November and December, uh, but it doesn't make Santa Claus true, right? And and I I guess I remain very annoyed that the Enlightenment actually hasn't won. And I'm I think the Enlightenment has won more than than you might than you might think because I want to emphasize that double-edged sword that double-edged that the fact that the Enlightenment is a double-edged sword, uh, which I think. Uh, but I'm really sorry, I, I, maybe I cut you off there. No, continue. No, no, I'd love to hear what you say about Enlightenment as a double-edged sword. Right, because I mean, well, as I alluded to before, I mean, there are aspects of the Enlightenment which you celebrate and which I certainly celebrate with you. The the emphasis on science and reason and the fact that you know received tradition shouldn't be accepted simply because it's received tradition. I think those are all um, noble things and certainly uh, something that's also very important to me personally. As someone who myself have gone from religion to being an atheist, of course, in that respect, I am in a way a child of the Enlightenment. But then there is this other side, and that's I think a side that people forget, and and that a lot of the champions of the Enlightenment don't really discuss which is the coupling of science and reason and all these positive things with a progressive philosophy and, and, and with progressive politics. 
thinking that the one reinforces the other, which in fact it does not. And that's what allows someone like Popper to uh, reject his non-progressive philosophical opponents as anti-enlightenment, as anti-science, as anti-reason, which they're not. Yeah, you can make principled arguments. For instance, people think of Ayn Randians as an example, right? A very high enlightenment person, but certainly not progressive, and at least not in the normal measure of such things. And yeah. uh, there are some people in the uh, people like Curtis Yarvin. I don't know if you know about him, but he's a, an interesting yeah, so. neo-reactionary character. I had him on the show a couple of weeks ago where we talked oh, about okay. his advocacy for monarchy in the United States, for instance. Oh, yes, I see. I'll take a uh, listen to that. Yeah. yeah, he's in some ways an enlightenment guy and comes to some rather reactionary uh, outcomes that become quite popular, actually. I mm. strongly reject that part of his philosophy, and we mm. argued quite a bit, but there is plenty of space in the enlightenment. And there's a, there's another idea floating around these days. Two people have both been on my show multiple times, John Verveke and Jordan Hall. And they talk about the religion that is not a religion. Verveke is both a philosopher and a cognitive science and is very knowledgeable about the history of Western philosophy and pretty knowledgeable about Eastern philosophy as, as well. And he comes to the view that there is a giant hole in particularly the educated elites that looks like religion. But his point is it doesn't have to have any supernatural attribute, that we can design social systems or evolve. You don't really design social systems, but you evolve social systems that fill the needs, the cognitive needs that are filled by religion, particularly meaning and defining what meaning actually is and not just having it handed down from some authority in ways that are generative and coherent in society in the way religion is and has many of the things like rituals and psychotechnologies, et cetera, that religions typically have, but minus all the supernatural elements. Mm. That strikes me as maybe an interesting way forward to actually fulfill the stalled enlightenment project. Right. Yeah, I'm, uh, I would have to know uh, more about the details of his particular project. My um, instinct maybe is to be somewhat skeptical of that. I mean, similar things have been tried in the past. I mean, you think of someone like uh, Comte, for example, uh, the French uh, positivist, right? They basically try to establish, you know, or, or, or Jeremy Bentham even, a religion of positivism. But I think Comte was probably the uh, the more extreme version, a religion of positivism where celebrating all these, having a basically science, a ritual of science and reason and, and these things. I think the supernatural element, and I don't want to emphasize it too much because in the book, I also talk about the fact that a lot of atheists who reject religion, they think that religion is just about the supernatural and believing, believing in some old man in the sky, which is of course a very vulgar and, and cheap understanding of what religion properly is. Religion to a great extent is also about the distinction between the sacred and the profane. However, the, the supernatural component is still, I think, quite important. And I think the supernatural component, because as I mentioned before, human beings generally need something above themselves. They, they need something higher to aspire to. And the most obvious candidate for such a thing is the supernatural, right? That doesn't mean that it's absolutely necessary. And certainly there are many individuals who can manage without it, without slipping into decadence or, or hedonism or anything like that. But I think for the great mass of uh, people in a society, my suspicion would be that if you discard the supernatural element entirely, you'll be uh, playing with fire. But, uh, but that's probably as far as I can go uh, without, uh, without having seen the details of, uh, of his particular project. 
Yeah, I'm uh, actually going to have he and Jordan Hall on the show sometime in the fall. They're going to go deep just on religion that's not a religion. That should be an interesting right. way to get on that. Yeah, I'll make sure to listen to that. Do you have about another 20 minutes or so? Yeah, certainly. Okay, so we'll not have to do a quick wrap here. One of the things I found quite interesting and totally new and actually you know, it expanded my brain, so it was worth reading the book for this alone, is the distinction you made between okeophobia of cultural relativism versus the okeophobia of positivism. We've just touched mm. on this a fair bit, right? Right. With the, you know, the sort of the positivist, I would argue, overreach on the Enlightenment, because the Enlightenment does not entail positivism, I would argue. I think you would agree. But it, I'm not but, sure I would agree, actually, but yeah, go ahead. But certainly one of the, I mean, uh, one of the uh, tendencies that came out of the Enlightenment was positivism. So anyway, why don't you make the argument for the two different kinds of okeophobia and how they're related and not related? Yeah, no, actually, I'm very happy to hear you ask that question because in, in my previous conversations or, or discussions about the book, I don't think this element has really been touched upon. And as you say, I actually do think that this is one of the most important aspects in the book, those two opposite tendencies of okophobia, the one relativist and the other positivist, but that they basically meet their opposite and they go away from each other, but then they sort of come around and meet again in the end because they have the common goal of tearing down one's own civilization. But so, yeah, so relativist okophobia appears first in history. Relativist okophobia we see already in ancient Greece, which is essentially speaking here, of course, of a relativism in a cultural context, cultural relativism, which is that we, we cannot say that our culture is better than anyone else's. Other cultures may be just as good. That's their culture, so it's just as valuable as ours and so on. So a culturally relativistic outlook, which of course serves an orcophobic purpose of degrading one's own culture, at least degrading one's own culture relative to other cultures uh, by raising other cultures up. And that happens uh, in, in the late 5th century, uh, certainly early 4th century BC. But then, and indeed, as uh, certainly as a result to a considerable extent of the Enlightenment, positivist orcophobia comes around mostly sort of in the, in the 18th century in Europe. And it is, I mentioned before, that one of the two heads of the Enlightenment is progressivism. Of course, it depends on what branch of the Enlightenment we're talking about, what exact Enlightenment figure we're talking about. I don't want to paint everything with a broad brush and say that all Enlightenment figures are like that. They're not. But progressivism certainly is a product of the Enlightenment, I think, to, uh, to a considerable extent. And positivism, the sense that we can use reason and science in order to arrive at eternal moral truths, that uh, certainly, I think, is an Enlightenment phenomenon. The whole idea of progressivism does not exist in ancient Greece, for example. We, we hear politicians use language like move, you know, moving our society forward, progressing, and so on. And not, not just progressive politicians, others as well. Basically, all of society has adopted this kind of language. That kind of language simply did not exist in ancient Greece because they don't have that notion of humanity progressing toward a higher state, right? It's, it's just not a pagan view. And so okophobia as positivism comes about because if, obviously, we're all going to progress to a higher state, and that means all of humanity, right? Not just we as a nation. Then, of course, our own specialness, our own exceptionalism has to be erased uh, in order to allow all of us to progress and come together in this higher state. And so progressivism does say, uh, positivism does say that there is this X culture or this X social condition, which is superior 
and that we're all moving toward it. That is, of course, the opposite of relativism because relativism says that, well, whatever is, is right to you is right to you and what's right to me is right to me. Which And so the positivism, uh, orcophobia's positivism is the opposite of that. But ultimately, since both positivistic and relativistic orcophobia have the same goal, namely orcophobia, namely tearing down one's own exceptionalism, one's own civilization, you find today these two strands, relativism and positivism, to be united in a lot of people, and they themselves don't often don't realize the uh, the hostility, right, the philosophical incompatibility that exists between those two ways of thinking. You ha- you find orcophobes who manage to be relativists, saying whatever is right for you is right for you, and and so on, and and truth is relative, and all of these things. And yet, at the very same time, they are convinced that there is this one particular social condition toward which our society and all of humanity ought to aspire, and that w- when we all get there, everything will be better. There is a utopia that's out there. And, and that's positivism. Yeah, the utopianist branch of the Enlightenment, I argue, comes from Rousseau, actually. And Yeah, that's, I think it's true to a great and, extent. And I, I think that's the bad branch of the Enlightenment, for sure. Right. I would say I would say Rousseau is I think Rousseau is certainly the most extreme in that regard, I would agree. But I think there are others who also, their expression might be less extreme, but I think they basically fall in the, or, or they move in the same direction if you think of uh, D'Alembert or, or even Voltaire himself to, to a considerable extent, Condorcet, I think. Uh, and in Germany, like someone like Herder, I think also moves in that direction. But uh, but yeah, Rousseau is, uh, the less said about Rousseau, the better, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I give the counterexample of Adam Smith and his theory of yes. moral sentiments. I mean, there's, a, uh, I would argue, an Aristotelian perspective. Absolutely. Yeah, no, the Scottish Enlightenment is, uh, I have only positive things to say. And of course, the Scottish Enlightenment is what really led to the United States, not the French right. Enlightenment. Uh, certainly, much more so. Interesting. Well, let's let's drill in just a little bit about. You obviously don't seem to think that progressivism may not be a good thing, but is that true? Yeah, I not? think the idea. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say. Uh, you know, let's say where we started, and, and you know, while Marx gets an awful lot wrong, his discussion about how modernism emerged from feudalism is actually quite interesting, and yeah. that, to my mind, is progressivism. Right? What's wrong with that? So there are different branches of progressivism. I mean, certainly, I'm not against uh, progress in in science and technology, in medicine, all of those things. How about personal liberty? Well, so that's already that's already where things start to get a little dicey because, you know, finding the cure of a disease, it's it's easy to see how that's just a positive. That's just something that's really good. Increase in liberty is a much more double-edged sword. And again, as I say, I, I myself obviously am a beneficiary. I mean, I live in what I think is easily the freest country in the world. I came here as an immigrant. I'm enjoying all its liberties. So uh, obviously, I'm not. Uh, coming out against freedom as such, certainly not. But increases in freedom is much more progressivism in philosophical progressivism, uh, political progressivism. Those are things that uh, where it's much easier to see that a progress in one area leads to regress in another. I mean, we mentioned decadence before, right? The more freedom we have, the, the more comfort and so on, the more decadence will also come. And and this is not, therefore, to condemn freedom, of course not, but it is to say that um, everything in life is is a trade-off. Not, maybe not everything in life, but certainly philosophically, politically, everything is a trade-off. There's a lot of trade-offs. Anyone who denies trade-offs is living in a fantasy world. Right, exactly. And uh, the, the, my problem with progressivism as an idea is that you think that is is the belief that there is such a thing as utopia, which of course there is not. If you see a particular problem 
that problem should be solved. Like if we can suddenly cure cancer, that would be amazing, right? Uh, or if we see that children are, uh, five-year-old children are being employed in, in, uh, in coal mines and they're dying at the age of 15 or 20, that's a particular problem that we can, that we, that we can solve by outlawing child labor, for example. But the idea that by doing that, we are not, if you have the idea that you're not just solving a particular problem, but by solving that problem, you are quote unquote, bringing society forward and progressing to a higher state. Once you have that kind of attitude, you're going to fall into all kinds of traps. And that's, that's my main problem with progressivism. With freedom more generally, and this is one reason why I, I'm not a conservative, right? So a lot of people who've read my book or, or seen my videos or anything like that, they think I'm a conservative. I'm not a conservative for a number of reasons. I mean, I, I'm an atheist, right? There are several philosophical reasons why I'm not a conservative, but I'm also not a conservative because I don't think that there is any one particular system that is universally true across time and space, speaking politically now. Right, I don't think that democracy is always the best for any people at any time in history. Uh, this is a somewhat Hegelian view, I suppose, because Hegel, right, he talks about how, you know, the freedom unfolds across civilizations. That whatever a particular civilization has is right for it. I don't go as far as Hegel does in that sense. I don't think that's he kind of almost has the attitude that if something happens, it means it was right. Right, that that's. Of course, not what I would think. Uh, some might quibble with my interpretation of Hegel, but anyway, be that as it may, I do believe that democracy, freedom of speech, all of these things, it's not always the right thing, depending on where and when we are uh, in history and in the world. For us right now, I would say that a combination of conservatism and classical liberalism would be is good for the United States, but I cannot say that I am uh, I'm a conservative because I don't hold to such uh, values as universally valid. And Again, for the same reason, progressivism, I'm certainly not a progressive because progressive is not un progressivism is not universally valid. There are situations, and I think we find ourselves in that situation right now, where, where too much of an emphasis on progressivism is detrimental because it makes us abandon not just what is bad, but also everything that is good about our history and about our tradition and culture. So. Yeah, and I think that's a very, and this is to this question of balance, you know, yeah. honest self-criticism. I mean, I would argue, for instance, that the liberation of women is a positive. I'm sure it has some negatives. It's funny, I'm just finishing reading Middlemarch now, the very famous British novel yes. written in the Victor high Victorian era, about the era, era just before Victoria took the, took the throne. And the amazingly pervasiveness of patriarchy in the middle class. And it's very, it is important to notice, to, to acknowledge that she's talking about the middle class only. We know that the nobles and the working class had different models, but in the middle class from, you know, say a, a, an independent surveyor up to a, a landed gentry, but non-titled patriarchy was so deeply in the soul of men and women that it was just thought to be right in the same way an even stronger form of patriarchy was the case in the Roman Republic. Seems to me a waste of 50% of human potential. And so, you know, again, my, if we think about this self-critical in the middle is to look at each thing, and we agreed earlier that the liberation of homosexuals mm -hmm. There's some negatives to it, probably, but uh, overall seems to me a, a big plus. And we can make these kinds of progressive changes towards more liberty, generally speaking, without buying into utopianism. Um, yes, I think to some extent that's true. 
but again, I would say it depends a little bit. I mean, if if you had had a very strong women's liberation movement uh, in the early fifth century uh, BC Athens, as the Persians were uh, coming marching, I think it would have been an unmitigated disaster. So I again, I I what what I can say at most is not that uh, I'm a feminist or anything like that. Uh, and of course, different people mean different things by feminism. But what I can say at most is that I support women's liberation now, right, in the United States in the 20th century or 21st century. But also to touch on another subject, we human beings as a society, certainly on a mass level, are incapable of doing everything in moderation or, or going up to what can be considered a salutary point. If we find something good, such as women's liberation, we, of course, have to take it too far. And, of course, that leads then to to certain extremes, now to the point that women should be liberated even from their very biology. It's considered to be unfair or unjust or or, uh, undesirable that women are the ones who bear children, for example. Uh, And so human beings being what they are, I think... And again, and that's why another reason why I'm not wedded to any of these ideologies very strongly, because I think I see how they all are taken to noxious extremes. And so, of course, most most people in the world uh, that are closest, the people in the world who are closest to me, they're they're women. And I've been a teacher in many countries on many uh, on many continents. One thing that's pretty much universally true across cultures and social classes is that the women, by and large, the females tend to be sharper than the, than the boys or the men, and certainly more uh, mature. So there is certainly no room for misogyny in my worldview, but I still cannot say that I think women's liberation is an unmitigated good, even though I support it, support it within a certain socio-historical context. And within limits, I'm, I'm with you. I consider right. myself a feminist, uh, but when pushed, I say I'm a second wave feminist. Right. I believe there should be no barriers to women doing whatever they want, but there should also no there should also be no expectation that the number of Marine Corps infantry sergeants is going to be fifty percent male and fifty percent exactly. female ever. It ain't going to happen. You know, I love I love the example from your own original home country of Sweden, uh, probably the most gender egalitarian country on earth, actually has a higher percentage of male engineers and female nurses than the United States does. Yes, which is an interesting, yeah, that's an interesting point, because uh, if, you, if you let, if you are fully free, if you let women be women and men be men and do whatever they want, you are going to see a certain sorting uh, taking place because uh, men and women are just not the same. They don't have the same preferences. Exactly. And that, and that the fact that one-tenth of one percent of Marine Corps sergeants are women is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a very unusual thing. And to expect 50 percent of women to want to be Marine Corps infantry uh, sergeants is just nuts. But as you point out, there are people who are nuts in that regard. And that's an example of non-Aristotelian moderation, I would say. Yeah. No, absolutely. No, I, I agree. I, I see that similarly. Yeah. yeah so, I, you know, I guess I just want to push back on this anti-progressiveness because I think there are a right. lot of positive changes that can be made in society as long as you don't swallow one of these holistic utopian ideologies. Uh, right. Uh, you know, with the bathwater. And I often point out to the, the, the highest enlightenment document wasn't any of the French encyclopedias or, or even Adam Smith, but was Jefferson and Madison's Statute of Li- Religious Liberty in Virginia in 1885 before the Constitution. And it's a great document. And I hope uh, my producer should put a link to it on the episode page because it's so level-headed. It's just so level-headed that, uh, yeah, you know, we should never have any force in religion, 
right? Basically, it's what right. it says that to, to have force in religion contradicts religion, right? In some yeah. deep sense, and so we, we will we will tolerate everyone to have their own freedom of consciousness. And unlike even you know the uh, Locke or people like that who are allegedly religious tolerant, but they didn't even tolerate Catholics, right? Right. <laughs> Madison and Jefferson went whole hog, right? Hindus, right. Jews, Buddhists, atheists, whatever. Yeah. Right? No, I, I love Locke's religious tolerance. You can do whatever you want as long as you're not a Muslim or a Catholic, yeah. But, <laughs> my problem, though, is that you say they're very level-headed, and I agree. I mean, I, I, I'm second to none in my respect for the Founding Fathers. I mean, some more than others, but by and large, certainly. But this level-headedness can simply not be taken for granted, and, and my problem is that this kind, of, this kind of freedom that we're talking about is in itself a mild version of utopianism because, and this is something I talk a little bit about in the book, not too much, is that the liberal order will collapse in on itself for, as we see, while looking, while looking at historical tendencies, because the more liberty and the more freedom and so on that we have, the more ecophobia there will be, and, and the civilization will turn in on itself. So it's not that I, I certainly welcome the fruits of progressivism, some of the fruits at least of progressivism, as you do, but I just feel that we, we are not level-headed as a society, unfortunately, and that's the problem with it. Because if you are a progressive, it's not just that you want to fix this particular problem here, it, it's, it's that you want to keep progressing. Uh, you always need to keep progressing, and that leads to eventually absurd and outlandish results. Yeah, some of this, uh, like I'm a strong feminist, strongly for homosexual rights, strong for freedom, but some of this trans crazy shit, fuck that, right? And you just have to have some discernment and, and to stay in the center. I mean, I love your concept of the, you know, the golden mean in these issues. If, mm-hmm. but, you know, it sounds like you're somewhat cynical about human nature and that it's very, very, very difficult to stay here yes. in the center. And I guess as yeah. an enlightenment man, I, I believe that it's at least possible to have a community of people who can dynamically stay in the center through change. Because yeah. uh, right. it, it, it's a change. Anyway, th- we can talk oh, about I this. Hope you're, I hope you're right, and uh, I hope you're right, and I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it might be. We'll see. But let's go into a last topic. And I was very pleased to see you mention this. It's a very obscure topic, but near and dear to my heart, which is you had a whole section about the power of boredom. The power of boredom? Yeah, you talk about how you know, Fukuyama, etc., didn't really. Oh, oh, yes, of course. Sorry, yes, yeah, that's yeah. right. Starting to forget my own book here. Yes, yeah, and, uh, and it's a weird topic, and I just happen to be interested in it because I personally have the view that the near collapse of Western civilization that started in 1914 was basically due to boredom. A hundred years of no major war, all the young men were all worked up, and, and everyone wanted to go fucking fight because they were. And I know that's probably an overstatement, but anyway, it's one of my own pet yeah. idiotic theories. But you talk about boredom as a very mm-hmm. important force in the evolution of human systems. So let's go with that, and then we'll have a final word, and then we'll wrap her up. All right. Yeah, so the uh, issue of boredom, right. So Fukuyama talks about that. That's part of my section where I criticize uh, Pinker as being this overly, uh, Stephen Pinker, his uh, book Enlightenment Now, as being overly positivistic and progressivist. And, and not being able to distinguish between areas of knowledge, you know, it, you, you become a politician, not a philosopher, if you think that your conclusion holds across areas of knowledge, right? And he says that 
you know, the fact that we're progressive, progressing in one area basically means we're progressing everywhere. And he, and he criticizes Fukuyama for this. That's how I get into the topic because Fukuyama, I think rightly, I have my other problems with Fukuyama, but I think he certainly rightly points out in his book, um, The End of History, that if you have too much boredom, you don't have a war to fight, you don't have uh, anything particular, religion is declining and uh, everything is just sort of all right, that boredom will then make the next generation go against its own civilization. Or, or uh, he doesn't exactly put it that way. I'm putting it now in more acophobic terms, but will make young people fight against the state that established their boredom, that established the safety and wealth and security that leads to boredom. Uh, and this goes back to the point um, that I made before, that we all need something higher to which, toward which to aspire. That higher thing can be different depending on the particular historical situation. It could be a war, right? We all band together in order to face a common enemy. It could be religion. We, uh, we worship a god together. But all of these higher things, they tend to be force for, com- they are a force for community, right? If, if you have to face an exterior enemy, or if you go to church together and worship a god in common, all of those things are communal activities in a certain way, very different activities, but they're all communal. But if you don't have any, any such thing, if you don't have anything higher, all you have is your own immediate person and the physical, your own physical surroundings that you interact with, then you will get very bored. Now, Pinker takes this too literally, and he thinks Fukuyama basically means someone who's literally bored and just is sitting with his head in his hand and has nothing to do. That's not what Fukuyama means. Fukuyama means... Uh, boredom in the sense of civilizational ennui, right? There is, there is no, uh, there is no higher cause. Meaning, you know, there's a and, and this is exactly. for, this is for, for Vakey, In fact, his famous fifty-hour video series, "Awakening from the Meaning Crisis." And yeah. I, by the way, did a ten-hour series with Vakey on the meaning crisis. And, ten uh, hours, right? Okay, excellent. Five episodes, and so right. yeah, that's, uh, that was my read. Is that, that your interpretation of Fukuyama was a void of meaning was the was the threat? Uh, it could lead exactly. to all kinds of things, right? Exactly, and so people find meaning in tearing down the statues of their own founding fathers, or on on going out and rioting, attacking the police, and so on. That's how people find their meaning, and that is also communal activity, right? People do that in groups because people do need a communal activity, but one has to understand that some communal activities are better or worse than others. Uh, coming together to to repel uh, uh, an enemy or coming together to uh, to worship in a church or a synagogue uh, are a lot better than coming together to tear down statues or to throw paint or, or, uh, or graffiti on police buildings and so on. So uh, the boredom is a very real civilizational problem and it comes with wealth luxury decadence security and all of those things the decline of religion and all of those things as we have discussed feed into orcophobia so um one has to find meaning Uh, and that's uh, something and uh, that's part of what enables me for example to be an atheist because at least i do have something that is higher than i myself and i have my work i have my philosophy right my intellect everything that i do and write about those are things that give me meaning but a lot of people don't have those things. And if they have then also rejected religion, then they end up being bored. So that could happen. All right. On that very interesting thought, let's wrap it up here. Let's thank Benedict Beckhelt for a very interesting discussion about his book, Western Self-Content, Ocuphobia in the Decline of Civilizations. Thank you very much, Benedict, for coming on the Jim Rutt Show and talking about your book. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. I really, I really have enjoyed it. 
Yeah. If anybody found this conversation interesting, go buy the book. We'll have a link to it on our episode page as usual. TimRutshow.com. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at ModernSpaceMusic.com.